The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Generally speaking, before coming to the particular, generally speaking, the elders, as we have sat and thought about where we are as a church and kind of some of the direction that we, we think we need to move, we want to particularly put our finger on and, and maybe then lift up in front of the whole congregation the great importance of prayer. And we put our finger on it to say it probably is the case that we don't pray as we should. And we want to lift it up and say, so be aware of coming opportunities and coming calls to pray. The reason that we emphasize that is that it is the people of God, the church of God is supposed to be a place where God comes and moves freely and has his way with his people. Not a place where, where we decide what we do and maybe take some principles and, and kind of apply them. It, it's his place that he moves freely through. And we want to ask him to move freely through this place, through this people, through our own hearts. Prayer, I, I, I don't need to go too far into that, I suppose, because prayer is an obvious component of that. And so, generally speaking, we want to say, may, may this year be a, a year that we start to pray. And, and pray that God would move freely among us. And specifically then, there's one item that I hope you'll notice as you walk out into the hallway today, and I think there's something in the bulletin about it, that, and this is a logistical point which may be modified as we find a better way to do it, but right now what we're doing, even starting today, is the conference room out here, after every service, we're, we're going to change it into a, a place where if you want to pray or be prayed for, pray with an elder, go into that room. We've tried to do it in here a few times, and, it, and it's worked out, yeah. So we're going to try to set aside a room and see if that helps. Go into that room and pray. Or if you want to just leave a prayer request, there's going to be a box there to write a prayer request, either on the tear-off portion of your uh, of your bulletin or with slips of paper that are out there. Stick them in the box. Put your name on them, make them anonymous, whatever. And we'll pray. But I'd invite you to slip into the room and go in there and pray. There'll be an, an elder in there, the elder who prayed. If you don't know who all the elders are, the, the elder who prayed today, so it'll be Jed Day, I think, will be out there in that room. Slip in there and pray with him. And as we go forward, if, if we think there's a better way to do that, if you have a better way to do it, you know, we'll, maybe we'll modify that. But we want to provide opportunity to actually pray right after the service with something that's on your heart, maybe something from the sermon or something from interacting with the people of God that's kind of struck you you want to act on. So, lastly, there are a few books on the book table that would be worth your time. One larger called A Praying Life, pretty, pretty easy read even though it is larger, one much thinner, which uh, is worth ten times its weight in gold, called a, Pr- a Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. There's a bunch of them out there on the book, book, uh, book table. I encourage you to check that out. You can read this in a single sitting. It's not that big, but it'll challenge you, and it will do a, a wonderful thing, I think. It'll, it'll encourage you. 
and poke you. So it won't just be a, it'll be a little bit of that, but it'll be in an encouraging way. And I encourage you to check that out on the book table. So with that, let me pray. Father, I just said that we want this to be a place where you own it and move freely through it. And that is what I now want to ask you to do, to come and move freely through your house of prayer, through your body, through your people. To move freely among us here, to have your way with us. Start with me, with each individual person sitting in each chair in this room, with those who will hear this later. Have your way with each of us individually to conform us to your image and to speak to us your word. We'll talk about many things this morning and maybe certain sentences or certain paragraphs are meant to change individuals' lives. Have your way with them. Maybe whole concepts are new. Make them clear. Maybe there are some here who don't know you. Call them to faith. Save them. Some who are wandering in sin, convict and call back. But God, I just ask that you would have your way here with us and that you would help me to make your word, your truth clear and that you would commission your spirit to to powerfully take it and illumine it to the minds of your people and to open the blind eyes of those who are not yet your people. Shine light into darkness, Spirit of God, that is your job. Would you convict the sin, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? Would you convict Christians of sin, of their falling short of righteousness? The fact that while judgment has fallen on Christ for it, we still want to be different. So call Christians to change also. Spirit of God, have your way with us. Would you please make the word clear this morning? Help me to be faithful and true to it and clear. Help us to listen with attention. Make us a people pleasing to you that Christ would be known here and beyond here because of it, because of this time this morning. Would you honor his name here? Would you bless your people? I pray this in his name. Amen. We return this week to the book of 1 Corinthians, and as we do so, we give our attention to one verse within a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we already looked at a bunch of weeks ago, back in the middle of December. We're going to look at one particular verse, give emphasis to that this morning. We noticed back in in December that in chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, lead us into a discussion that Paul is is now looking at through the whole rest of this chapter the issue of the resurrection of the dead. That's that's where he's going as he starts to wind down this letter to to Corinth. And he's facing here yet another issue that was a problem in the church in Corinth. We notice that verse 12 said that some actually in Corinth did not believe that the dead are raised back to life. And so he comes now to address that issue. And he probably comes to it last because it is the perfect final point. If you've thought through this letter and how the gospel is woven through all corners and and segments of this letter, 
if you thought that through and kind of grasped the gospel, the whole gospel is moving towards the issue of resurrection. Spiritual resurrection and then finally physical resurrection. This gospel, which is, you'll recall, a message, it's news, it's good news about what God has done to save people. It is not a recipe about what we are to do to save ourselves or to make ourselves worthy of being saved. It is news about what someone else, somewhere else, God, has done to save. And this message includes, right at the core of it, really as, as kind of almost the pinnacle of it, resurrection, a bringing to new life. He sketched out the gospel very briefly in verses 3 and 4. Christ, God the Son, come down to earth in flesh, died, really truly died, was buried, and really truly rose again from the dead. The resurrection is right in the heart of the gospel. Just like God said He would, He sent Christ. Just like God said He would, He killed Him. And just like God said He would, He brought Him back. Everybody saw it. Peter saw it. The 12, the leadership saw it, the 500, the, kind of the church body saw it, the apostles saw it. And when Paul says apostles, he probably means some particular people who were eyewitnesses of Christ and then were sent to talk about him everywhere. They saw it. And lastly, Paul, last and least of the apostles, he saw it. It's in verses 8 and 9. That begins to bring us into the issue that we're going to look at in verse 10. Last and least. Paul's an apostle but the last and the least of the apostles. Of all the people who should be an apostle, Paul shouldn't be one. Paul was never a follower of Jesus. He's never a member of the church, but in fact was a persecutor of the church. This Paul had no business being a spokesman for the church and a preacher of Christ. He'd done all that was in his power to oppose, to persecute, to stamp out, even to kill Christians. As we've seen, some in Corinth had a really hard time respecting Paul. And essentially what he's saying here in these verses is, yeah, I know. Sure, I am the last and the least of the apostles. I know that full well. But I also know this, God is a God of amazing grace. Grace that saves even a wretch like me. That's the issue. Grace that is amazing and saves even a wretch like us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. A God who is a God of amazing grace that, that is, it is the theme of the gospel that is the, 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 the thing that God wants to be praised for, to the praise of His glorious grace the refrain of Ephesians 1 where the gospel is spelled out. Grace is indeed amazing. And Paul grabs that in verse 10, and that's what we're going to look at. The saving and empowering grace of God for sinners like us. I'm going to read the whole section to get to verse 10, because it's been a little while since we've looked at these verses. But really the focus is going to be on verse 10, from which I'm going to draw out this main point for this morning. Here's the main point I'm working on. God saves and empowers his people to live for him all by grace. God saves and empowers his people to live for him, and it is all by grace. That's what I'm going to look at this morning. Let me read the passage. This is 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to make two observations to unpack this main point this morning. They come from two parts of, of verse 10. Here's the first one. And it's first in the text, and it's also first logically. The grace of God is responsible for a person's new life in Christ. I, I hope I say that and you say, duh, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. And let me put emphasis where I mean to emphasize. The grace of God is responsible for a person's new life in Christ. It's the grace that's responsible. Not anything else, not us. End of verse 9, into the beginning of 10. I was a persecutor of the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am a member of the church of God. And in particular, I am an apostle of God. Last and least, to be sure, but that's what I am. By the grace of God. That's the operative element. By. By what? By grace. By means of God's grace. So let's be sure that we understand grace. We've got to start there. This word's kind of thrown around a lot. It's used in a number of different religious backgrounds. What does the Bible mean when it talks about grace? Well... Grace is favor, blessing, or goodness, you might say. It is goodness that is neither, and this is the critical element that makes grace grace, it is goodness that is neither, from the viewpoint of the giver, necessitated or obligated. From the viewpoint of the receiver, it is neither earned, deserved, nor merited. So in this case, we're talking about God is the giver of grace, and, and grace is goodness that God is not necessitated, He is not required, He is not obligated, there is nothing over Him that says you should. It would be right for, it would be proper, it would be appropriate, it is necessary. There's nothing that says that. He is not necessitated nor obligated. And from the receiver, there is no shape, in no way, shape, or form is there any earning or deserving or meriting. There is nothing that says, I have moved a half step forward, so more than you, I deserve. 
I've grasped something just a little bit better, so instead of you, I merit. There's, there's nothing there. It is goodness in a situation to a person where, in the Bible's setting, what is necessary, what is obligated, what has been earned, what is deserved is wrath. But goodness comes instead. That's grace. That's the grace of God. Origin in God. Not in people. Which, again, given the definition of it, should, should make some sense. But we need to stop and think about that for a second. Because if there is, from God's viewpoint, no obligation, no... no necessity and from the receiver's standpoint nothing whatsoever that warrants it and yet it happens anyway grace happens that should tell you something very important about the very character of God he is not in any way whatsoever obligated to do something but he does it anyway Because in the very heart of God is a strong bent, if you will, to be gracious. To be full of steadfast love and mercy. To to pour out goodness, generosity, kindness, grace. It is very easy, I think especially as you read the Old Testament, it is very easy to think, uh, I know that about God, yes, but look at all of this. Look at God in His justice and His righteousness and His, his opposition to sin and his, and his holy purity. And yeah, he's, he's gracious, I know. But it's very easy to accidentally, in our minds, make... You've got, if you've got attributes of righteousness and justice and grace and mercy to kind of... And we make the grace piece the, the secondary... Um, the, the second class, the second level, kind of because God should be like that. No, God, God is like that. In all of his attributes, they all hold together at once. He is holy. He is is morally pure. I mean holiness in moral purity sense. He is indeed righteous. And he is indeed just. And he is indeed just as much grace. Just as much love and mercy. He is justly gracious. Graciously righteous. Mercifully just. And to begin to put all these things together... This is where the cross comes from. This is where the cross comes from because God who is gracious and just, who is righteous and merciful, who is loving and who is indignant against sin, puts all of those things together all at once in the cross and only in the cross but in the cross. There is a way, a way that God can be both 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but not overlooking the sin of people. As he describes himself in the Old Testament repeatedly. There's a way, and it's in the, united in the cross, where he sent his son to bear the wrath that his righteous justice requires and to then be able to pour out grace on you as he graciously, mercifully wants to. Under no obligation, under no necessity, which you don't deserve, but he wants to. It's a marvelous thing. Do you realize that about the nature of God? And does it make you sing? Paul realized this and he sang forever praise to his marvelous, glorious grace. Does it grab you and move you? Or do you, you sit kind of with that lodge in some sort of a technical theological category that doesn't really matter to your heart? I plead with you, people of God, to look at that and notice something about yourself. Notice your, your coldness to it. It should not be. There is something amazing that has happened. Grace. By grace, God did something marvelous. Unless for you, he hasn't yet. And then I invite you to step into it. It's, it's highly, highly possible. There are people sitting in the room here who are not Christians yet. And all I can say to you is there is something amazing on the table right next to you that does not yet live in you. The just and righteous God is also a gracious and merciful God. But if you don't know the grace and the mercy coming from the cross, all you have to face is the righteous justice and the wrath that will fall on you in your sin. Flee from that to the cross and find the grace of God. I just invite you to do that. Trust Christ and say, I need your help. I need your help. I need your help. I am doomed before a holy God. Unless I bathe myself in the grace of God at the cross. Do that. But for most of you, this has already happened. You are th Think about what has happened to you. By grace. You are no longer an enemy of God, but He has acted to redeem you. He has, oh man, Christian, you are going to live for a thousand thousands of years. And you are going to live accepted in the presence of this good God forever and ever and ever and you will be forever singing the praises of this grace because it's the only reason you're there enjoying the goodness of God forever because He made you His friend when you were His enemy He did it all by grace undeserved, unmerited start to finish He made you His friend He forgave you of His sin He brought you in and made you an heir an heir 
That's a person who has a vast inheritance. And at the center of that, as I've said before, is relationship with God himself. But think of all of the rest of the inheritance. Some of which you enjoy even right now. Think of all of the good that is in your life. Line it all up. Line line up the material good. Line up the the circumstantial relational good. And I, I hope... In that, there'll be some of you who realize that some of the things you used to think were bad have actually turned out to be good or good for you. Think of all of the good that is in your life that is by the grace of God. Think of the material things. You, You ate this morning if you wanted to. You drew breath a second ago and then again. At this, at this very small level, it is all by the grace of God to you. But above and beyond that, you have relationship with this God even right now as the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit lives inside of you. And what is He doing? He's doing good to you. He's doing good to you even right now as He changes you and frees you. Talked about that a few weeks ago. He saved you and He is saving you. Every moment of every day, He is changing you and freeing you from all the junk that you struggle with and all the junk you suffer under. By grace. He is at work in you and He is at work work through you in others and you are not left aimless or useless in life. You have a purpose in this, in this passage, Paul is particularly thinking about his purpose of being called to be an apostle. And you're not an apostle. But you are called to be a part of the church and called to be involved in the same work of building the church and spreading the kingdom. You have a purpose. You have a role in the great mission that God is engaged with to bring all of the nations into subjection to His Son. All of that is by His grace. You are what you are by grace. And right there, if I, if I pause right there, I want to pause there to put my finger on the actual burden of this verse, of this passage. It is amazing... Because it shouldn't be. Not to you. And I say it like that to put my finger on the burden. It shouldn't be. Not to you. Paul is not just stating the existence of grace. He's got a context. It shouldn't be to me. That's what Paul's saying. I... Let me put 9 and 10 again. I am unworthy because I was a persecutor of the church. But by grace, I am what I am. It is amazing because it should not be for me. Grace has saved and redeemed and changed and freed even an unworthy wretch like me. That's what Paul's saying about himself. 
put a word picture on it. It is as if Paul is, is preaching in a pulpit and he is talking about grace. Grace that saves and redeems and changes and leads to resurrection of life. And he looks down and he sees Stephen's splattered blood on his clothing and it all rushes back to him. Ooh. I remember. I stood there and I yelled out, Kill him! Get him! Those words came out of my mouth. I said that. And I cheered him on as the stones fell. And he, and he cried out to God and he died right in front of my eyes. I thought it was a great thing. And then I set up a, a systematic program to repeat that as often and as thoroughly as I could. And I was chasing people down. I, that was me. I did that. I did that. The blood of the people of God is on my hands, and here I stand proclaiming this Christ to the people of God. Wretch that I am, by grace, it is amazing. Do you sit here thinking, well, sure, that's Paul. Not me. Yes, it's you. Not literally you killing Stephen. There have been songs and poems written about how I stood at the cross and I cried out, crucify him. Not, not literally, but yes, you did. I drove the nails into his wrists. Not literally, but yes, you did. This is just as much about you. We're, we're uncomfortable. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Amazing Grace was written in a previous generation because no modern person would write the word wretch. Because we're out of touch with reality. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a not-so-good person like me is what we would write. It's wretch. It's wretch. It's murderer. He who hates his brother is guilty of murder. It's adulterer. He who looks on a woman lustily is guilty of adultery. It's wretch. It's you. But by grace, God's goodness to a wretch like me, like you, under no obligation and deserving something completely other, God has chosen to smile on you, bless you, save you, fix you, and deliver you to glory. To the praise of His glorious grace. Do you know it? Do you know it? May He give you eyes to see it that His wrath is no longer on you. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. And again, I say, if you're not in Christ, become a Christian and know this God. May the truth of this fill your mind 
and cause you to marvel at it. And if it does, it will, it will humble you and it will leave you hopeful. It will humble you as you come to realize, I didn't do anything whatsoever. I deserved completely otherwise. And as you look at your sin and realize who you really are, and I mean the sin of how you have lived and acted, don't, no. I run into people all the time who get very upset with me for talking like this. Don't turn away from that sin. Look at it. Embrace it. Remember it. Counterintuitively, it is good for you. Because the more you see of your sin, and if you then realize grace conquers that, then the, the greater grace seems. Grace that is greater than this sin. And it is great grace. Uh, unless your sin is only minor, and then it's just a little bitty grace. Great sin and great grace go together. Look at your sin. Don't let go of it. And don't skip over your sin in the situations where others have sinned against you. We sometimes do that too. We say in our minds, either I'm a sinner or I'm a victim of someone else's sin. Really, you're both. All of you, all of us, me, we're both to different degrees. I know. Yes, I know. There's sometimes horrible things. I, I'm really aware of that. Horrible things that have been done to you. Yes. And 99% of the time we sin in response to the horrible things done to us. The horrible things that somebody else did, that's on his or her farm. Don't miss how you've responded to it. Your sin, in God's grace, it is greater than it. Really. Keep looking. Keep looking at the sin. Don't run from it. If you would look at it and realize that this is who I am and God Himself alone has changed that by grace, it will humble you and it will tear down all pride. How sweet and meek of a people we would be if we realized that it actually really is true there, but for the grace of God go I. That, that's true. What do you know? It is. And everything that you have and every good thing that you are, you are what you are by grace. Every gift you have by grace. Every opportunity you've enjoyed by grace would humble us and it would make us a sweet and meek people. And it should make us a hopeful people. Because in the midst of all this sin, He saved you anyway. And He began a good work in you that He will complete. And He's never going to discover under that rock something that will surprise Him and make Him say, Whoa, I've been way wrong about this one. And leave you. Never, never take heart. He can never love you more than he does right now. He is at work to change you and free you and fix you. But he loves you fully with an everlasting love by grace. Don't be one of two people that stopped listening three minutes ago or stopped listening one minute ago. The person who stopped listening three minutes ago turned me off when I started talking about sin. Don't, don't. Keep looking. And the person who, turned, who stopped listening one minute ago got crushed by sin and never heard hope. I, I, talk, I say this because I've talked to people repeatedly who say, why didn't you talk about there being any hope? I did. You didn't hear it. Put both of them together. Really. Put them both together. 
His grace should humble you in your sin and give you great hope in His gracious power to act on you and never leave you and never forsake you, but always be working to change you. Do not stop in verse 9. I am unworthy. Come all the way into verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Hallelujah. There is grace and it is real and it saves you and makes you new and gives you a new life. And it is the grace of God all the way through that does that. That's the first point. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's all I can say as I think about that. And then the second point picks up the rest of the verse. Because going forward from that, grace speaks to the rest of life too. Out from the actual saving and the changing. I've got stuff to do today and tomorrow and the next day, and grace addresses that. So here's the second point. He is saved, but there's more than that. The grace of God is what empowers our faithful and fruitful work in our new lives in Christ. God's grace is what empowers our faithful and fruitful work in these new lives that we now have. As, and, and I'm using that word work on purpose because I want to confront something. Sometimes we... We think we've got two categories. Either we've got a work category, or we've got a grace category. But you know, one's Christian and one's not. That, that's not. That's not right. Work is a Bible word. It's as a pastor I once knew said: "Grace is not opposed to work. Grace. Listen to this carefully. Grace is opposed to merit. Grace empowers work." It just says, it doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't ever change the deserved, I should get. No. It's opposed to merit, but grace is not at all opposed to work. Let's see this in the passage here. Paul says, verse 10, By grace I am what I am, and then he mentions grace again, and his grace towards me was not in vain, or to put that a little differently, rather than in vain, you might say, was not pointless, was not empty, was not fruitless, was not ineffective. God acted in grace on Paul, made him an apostle, saved him, made him an apostle, and that grace then didn't lead to nothing. To some sort of a meaningless, going through the motions kind of apostleship. It bore fruit. Why? Because Paul worked really hard. I think that's what it says, doesn't it? Continuing the next verse. The giving, continue, the giving of grace was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Harder than any of the other apostles. Which is saying something. If you pause for just a second and think about what the first century climate was like, how Christianity was perceived, what it was like to be an apostle back then, this was no cush job for any of the apostles. And Paul says, I outworked them all. I faithfully took hold of the calling to be an apostle 
And what did he do with that? I mean, goodness, he traveled the whole Mediterranean world. He bent the stoning of Stephen, and he himself was stoned. Persecutor, persecuted. He faced ridicule and accusation and all kinds of difficulty at every turn. He worked menial jobs with his hands to support himself. He describes this in, in chapter 4. Remember that chapter 4? He, he uses a couple of phrases there. We were like the scum of the earth. The stuff that people scrape off their shoes. That's me. The apostle. Like men led into the arena to die. The Roman arena. That's me, the apostle. Come follow me. That's what he says. Come follow me. It bore fruit because he worked really hard. There are Christians and churches everywhere because of Paul's sacrifice. And we must not overlook this very real, very deliberate, very conscious sacrifice. It's part of the point. There would be no church in Corinth if a human being had not gone there to preach the gospel and faced all of what he faced. Human sacrifice and hard work and conscious choice to endure and embrace all things that I might save some was how Paul thought. Very evident in the verse. And that truth must be combined with, not erased by, the next phrase. Though it was not I. That's what it says. Though it was not I. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. Well, of course it was you, Paul. I mean, of course it was him. He got up in the morning. He made decisions about how to spend his time. It was him, but not him. What he means was that the, the drive that moved me was not coming from me didn't originate in me, in my superior character or my natural intellect or, or my dogged determination. It wasn't me. But it was the grace of God with me. There's grace again. Third time in the verse. The grace of God is what empowers His faithful and fruitful work. It's not instead of me, it's the grace of God with me. Kind of like, if you need a picture, kind of like a parent who's teaching a kid how to ride. The kid's feet are going around on the pedals. The kid's working the balance. Dad or mom's holding on to the bike with me. In this case, though, never lets go. It's with me, the Spirit of God with Paul. The grace of God with Paul. Well, how does this work? And we need to ask how for our own sakes because it's not, it's not really super important to know just as a historical point what Paul did day to day. We need, we need to ask because we ourselves are following along right after him and we have lives to live. We have been saved. We have been given a mission and a purpose and we don't want to live our lives in vain. So I, I, want to, I want to stand here and find that my life is not fruitless, is not wasted. I hope you don't either. We don't want that. We, we mustn't have that. 
Because God doesn't want it for you. God doesn't want us to squander our lives. He has not saved you, Christian. He has not saved you to send you on vacation. Which, and let me be clear, He has very much saved you to live a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. All of that. Not on vacation, though, in the midst of conflict. Because in reality, we are at war. This is something... We Western Christians need to face something that we often, and, and I'm very careful to say, not all of us, and not always. But we often seem confused about something. We seem to think that God has saved us to a life of ease and relaxation as if heaven is now. It isn't. Yes, indeed, absolutely, amen, hallelujah, He has saved us to a life of rest, and yet we have not entered the final rest yet. We now rest amidst conflict God is still on the march. Psalm 2, you recall from back a ways, Psalm 2 is still going on. He is still bringing all the nations underneath of His Son. There's a war out there. There is a war in here that I am called, you are called to fight. And it will require work. Action. Determination. You must. But not you. The Spirit of God with you. Or did I say grace with you? I keep mixing those words up. Because they're connected. We'll come back to that. But do you realize, before I go into explain how, that it's good news that it's not you but the grace of God with you? Because doesn't it just kill you when somebody like me or maybe you in, in times of determination realize I, I, have to, I have to attack this. I have to work here. I have to make war on this sin in my heart. I need to talk to my neighbor about Christ. I need to sacrificially give so that the... the The church in Saudi Arabia can expand and grow. I need to. Man, I better buckle down and get to it. Oh, I hate that. Doesn't that happen to you? Doesn't doesn't it kind of happen? Well, the, the good thing is that that's not the motivation that God uses with us. Something else that's far better. It's the grace of God with you. How does that work? This was a confusing concept for me for a long time. Which, let me carefully say, I'm not saying now I have arrived and I always live faithfully and fruitfully. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the confusion about how this works. By grace, I've been moved beyond a little bit. This was confusing for me for a long time because I would hear something like this or I would read 
God is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Okay, good. God is at work in me. Or the grace of God empowers me to say no to sin. And I think what I thought is that I would just kind of be stronger. I'd have more willpower. I read through the Spirit, there's discipline in there. I'd be, I'd be stronger. Like you do push-ups. At first, 10 push-ups are difficult until they're not, and then 15's hard until it's not, and then 30's hard until it's not. I thought I would just kind of get stronger like that, and that wasn't really happening. It was very confusing. I'm supposed to do, and it's just as hard as it was last year. How does God intend to help me be different? To work faithfully and fruitfully. The grace of God with me, what does that mean? Well, here's what I'd missed. The grace of God that enables work to be faithful and fruitful, it does so, I'll try to put this in a sentence, risking oversimplification, but I think this can make it clear. It does so by changing our perceptions of reality. So that we think differently about what is real, about what is important, about what is desirable, about what is beneficial, about what is good. So in other words, the grace of God works to change my inside and bring it into line with the truth so that I am then set free from following after error. Fruitlessly. Faithlessly. So, let me personify grace to try to illustrate this. Let's call grace Mr. H.S., and you kids can explain that to your parents. Mr. H.S., with me. As I walk through the day, what does grace, Mr. H.S., do? He dialogues with me. And as I, as I look at something and I make an evaluation of it and I consider it, he says, mm, yeah, that's true, but have you noticed this? And he puts his finger on something, points it out to me, and says, hmm. Well, but what about, and then he reminds me, yeah, but do you remember? And I think, oh, but you know, it would be great. And he says, oh, but you know, it would be better. He's with me, dialoguing with me, maybe you could say arguing with me, persuading me, convincing me, showing me a different point of view. You do this with each other, don't you? You, you walk with a friend and a, and a friend says one thing and then you say, yeah, but what about, and then you say, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's what the grace of God does. And the part that we don't understand is why it is, when it is, how it is, we come to be persuaded. That's the supernatural piece. So this Mr. Holy Spirit walks beside us, and when I say, you know what would be great is to spend $5,000 on a golf vacation. 
Man, that'd be fun. He says, yeah, that probably would be fun. But you know what else? It probably also would be good for you to do something that your family might enjoy. You could do with your young kids who can't play golf. And it might be a whole lot cheaper. That $4,000 could be spent somewhere else, couldn't it? And you say, well, yeah, but I don't want to. I'm going to... But then for some reason, next year, you think, this is the part you don't understand, that's a good point. And when you, friend, Spirit of God, when you start to d- dialogue with me about my benefit, the pleasure of golf or the pleasure of, maybe it's with your family, maybe it's the pleasure of, of meeting folks in heaven that your invested money reached, You begin to dialogue with me about that. For some reason, this sounds more persuasive than it did last year. I'm not really sure why. The grace of God is changing you. Me, personally, I try to make it from my car to the door of my house as quickly as I can without making eye contact with some particular neighbors. Because it is highly likely that I'm going to get roped into a conversation about something that I don't want to be talking about. And frankly, I'm tired. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, I know you're tired and your kids are inside. You haven't seen them in a while and be good to relax. But that guy's not a Christian. You realize that? Yeah, I know, but who cares? (laughs) Until for some reason, a month later or two months later, I think, yeah, you know, he's not. And maybe, maybe you're right. Roped into a conversation is just conversation, getting to know him. And maybe you're right. If, if I were to engage with him, something might come of that that would change his eternity and mine too. I'll think about that tomorrow. But then two months after that, when, when it happens again, then I stop and talk to him. Now, what caused the change in me? I don't know. That's the supernatural work of God. But that's how grace with me changes me. It's, it's dealing with me on things that are, that are understandable. We are built up as our minds are renewed. Truth becomes evident. Reality is seen for what it is. That's what the grace of God The Spirit of God does. Now, I don't understand, none of us do, why the change happens. And I see it differently this time, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. We just have to leave that at the, the, God did that. But that's how grace changes you. And then you choose, you work, in line with what you now see to be reasonable and right and good. So what we have to do is we have to give the Spirit of God tools, truth, and access He's going to walk with me. I've got to want to walk with him rather than say, no, thank you. I've got this. I surrender to the Spirit of God and say, have your way with me. And I give him truth to use to work on me with. 
So that when he says, well, what about, and do you remember, he's got something to work with. And so do I. Oh, yeah, I do remember. You saved a wretch like me, just like that guy. The grace of God is what empowers our faithful and fruitful work in our new lives. The grace of God is what saved you and gave you a new life in the first place. Your life is all by grace. It is amazing and it is awesome. Sing the praises of it forever. As we move to communion, let me pray. Spirit of God, would you have your way with us? We're a couple hundred people or so in a couple hundred different places, known fully and accurately to you. And so would you have your way with each individual here in this room? Where repentance is appropriate, bring conviction of sin, please. Where encouragement is needed, bring hope. Where simple trust of you is needed, enable your people to believe you to be good. To help us as we take cup and bread in hand to see in it the marvelous work of God to send His Son. To send His Son to die for us. To cause us to see the grace in that. To praise You for it, to thank You for it, and to rest in it. Enable us to work out of that rest. Thank You, Lord. We love You. We trust you. Help us to love you and trust you more. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.